And once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 2? John chapter 2, as we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And for the past couple of weeks, we have been studying a section in John's Gospel, uh, chapter 2, where Jesus cleanses the temple. In fact, all four Gospels record the cleansing of the temple by Jesus. John puts it at the beginning of his ministry, whereas uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the end, in fact, the week of the crucifixion, uh, causing many to believe the Lord cleansed the temple twice. Now, as we've already pointed out, God had ordained the temple to be a place where he and man could come together through the animal sacrifices, the blood of which would atone for man's sins and allow Jehovah and Jew, basically, to have uh, communion with one another. And uh, we also know from our study that the temple was to be a place where prayer and worship were offered to God and where healing on an emotional level, because when you get your life right with God, there's going to be an emotional healing and possibly even a physical healing as we have been studying. But the temple was also a place where Gentile seekers could come to the outer court of the temple, also known as the court of the Gentiles. And there they could talk to the priest. That was the idea. Priests were supposed to be in this area, uh, engaging Gentile seekers who would come with questions about the God of Israel. Uh, you know, maybe asking questions because they were thinking about proselytizing to Judaism and becoming part of God's covenant people. And God always was wanting that. That's why he established a place in the temple area where the Gentiles could come and ask questions and pray and so on. It was a spiritual place where it was supposed to be. This was a holy place. That is until it was corrupted by the Sadducees and the chief priests who had turned the temple into a money-making business as we have been looking at. Uh, instead of a spiritual place where people could come, people could come to the house of God uh, get right with him, enter into fellowship with him, and so on. That's what uh, basically church is all about, whether you're talking about the temple back then or church today. But So here's the condition that Jesus found the temple in. And so he had no uh, other choice but to cleanse it from all this you know, thievery and merchandising. And so again we read in verse 14, and he found the uh, in the excuse me, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep, oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, "Take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise." Then the disciples remembered that it was written, "Zeal for your house has eaten me up." Matthew also records, and I've been pulling for, for this study from all four Gospels, because some mention things that the others don't. We've been kind of pulling from all four of them. But Matthew also records that after Jesus cleansed the temple, he said to the corrupt spiritual leaders in charge, he said, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves, indicting them. Now, Last week we said, guys, it wasn't until Jesus cleansed the temple that it could again be uh, used for what God designed it to be used for. Again, a spiritual place, all right? not a place of merchandising and corrupt business and making money. And it wasn't until Jesus drove all that corruption out that the temple of God 
uh, could again be used as a place that God intended it to be. And, uh, and we said that, look, that applies to the church today. The church is the temple of God today. We looked at Ephesians 2, where Paul says that very thing. The temple in Jerusalem is gone. It has been gone for since 70 A.D. But God still dwells in the temple of his church, and yet the church of Jesus Christ in these last days has been pretty corrupted and polluted with uh, ungodly things as well. And I believe Jesus has to and is even beginning to uh, clean house so that the church could once again be what God designed it to be. Now, that's been kind of the theme of this, of this study the last few weeks, uh, the temple of God. And of course, looking primarily now at the temple of God in these days, the church, what is it supposed to be? What has God designed the church to be? And uh, we said that before we looked at what the church is to be, we first needed to look at what it was not to be. And so that's we spent a, a little time on this, very simply, and I'm, this is not an exhaustive study. I just am drawing from the passage uh, of the cleansing of the temple and just kind of bringing some things out. But uh, what the church is not to be. We said the church is not to be a money-making business. Now, we've covered that. Secondly, the church is not to be a place where pastors and preachers are turned into celebrities who then, who then exploit their congregations for personal gain. That's not what the church is to be, but unfortunately, that's what it is uh, in many circles. All right, what is the church to be? And these are not, you know, uh, profound they're just very simple, very basic. First of all, the church is to be a house of prayer. I'm not going to review these because I'm just going to mention what they are because we've already studied these. But the church is to be a house of prayer. Number two, the church is to be a place of worship. The church, number three, is to be a healing place. We looked at that last week. And number four, where we start the study today, the church is to be a place where God's word is taught faithfully and in truth. This is a very important point. A very Not that those others aren't important, but this is a, an extremely important point. The church is to be a place where God's word is taught faithfully and in truth. And I'm going to just pull from Luke's gospel on this night, chapter 19. We read in verse 45, Jesus went into the temple and drove out the money changers and all the animals. And we've talked about that. Verse 47 and then he began to teach in the temple daily. He began to teach in the temple daily. Now look, <clears throat> wherever Jesus went, he taught the people God's word, but especially when he was in the temple. You see, the house of God was to be a place where people could go and know that they, were, they would hear the truth of God proclaimed, whether through prophet, priest, or rabbi. Rabbis were all over the temple complex teaching their students. And it became a place where people could, would know that they could go to the house of God, the temple, back then. And uh, that they would hear the word of God being proclaimed. At least that's the way it was supposed to be. But again, corrupt men like the Sadducees had hijacked the temple and turned it into, again, as I said, a money-making business. The only thing they taught was how to get wealthy. And uh, who were these guys? Well, the Sadducees were a sect of Judaism. Uh, they were materialists. In other words, they didn't believe in the supernatural. Uh, and as such, they didn't believe in angels, miracles, nor did they believe in life after death. So they didn't believe in resurrection. 
That's going to come into play next time. We'll talk about that a little bit. Now, because the uh, Sadducees didn't believe in life after death, listen to me, it caused them to put all of their time and energy into the pursuit of pleasure, power, and wealth in this life. In this life. They gained power by getting cozy with the Roman government, who put them in charge over the temple and its concessions, the money changers and the selling of animals for sacrifice. And that brought them great wealth. And with it, the ability to have whatever they wanted, which fed into their materialism and their hedonism. Guys, these so-called spiritual leaders were nothing more than greedy, materialistic charlatans. The very people that Paul talked about uh, years later in 1 Timothy 6, he characterized them as men who thought godliness or religion was a way to get rich. It wasn't just the Sadducees, but they were one of those in that group. These were the men in charge of the temple, in charge of God's house, okay? Uh, They were masquerading, though, as men of God, but they weren't men of God, not at all. Now, today we would categorize them as theological liberals, men who gave God's word lip service, but in reality didn't really hold it in high esteem. Since they didn't believe in the supernatural, they didn't believe the scriptures were divinely inspired, supernaturally revealed word of God. In fact, they rejected all the Jewish scriptures as not coming from God, simply the words of man, okay? All except the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, those they believe came from God, and yet, you know how liberal theologians are. Even when they believe something is of God, they twist it and turn it to to, basically agree with what they want it to say. So consequently, guys, and, and stay with me, consequently, these men didn't believe, as, as Jesus did, that man should live, listen, by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God, because they rejected most of what proceeded from God's mouth. I mean, God gave the, well, today it's called the Tanakh. It starts with the Torah, and you have the, um, uh, the writings, and then the, the prophets. All of that, our Old Testament, uh, is the Jewish Tanakh. And yet, these men rejected almost all of God's word, focused only on a small part. So they didn't believe that man should live by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. Because, listen, and here's what we believe as evangelicals, but they didn't believe in the verbal, plenary inspiration of the scriptures. What does that mean? Verbal inspiration carries the idea with it that every single word in the Bible is there because God put it there, without exception. We would even go as far as the, not just the words, but as Jesus said, the dot of the I's cross of the T's, the tenses, whether something is in the past tense or present tense makes a difference. Paul had a whole doctrine built around that. Uh, down to the smallest detail, we believe in the inspiration of God's word. That's verbal inspiration. Plenary means that all parts of the Bible are equally authoritative and true. Now, Years ago, I talked to a pastor. I'm not going to tell you what denomination he was from because I don't know if he represents all of his denomination. But he said in his particular denomination, they believe when the Bible spoke on spiritual subjects, it was inspired and could be trusted. When it spoke on scientific subjects, it couldn't be trusted. See, we don't believe that. As evangelicals, we believe that all of God's word, whatever is in there, is divinely put there by God. And all of it's authoritative because it's all the word of God, right? 
But guys, listen, whenever a spiritual leader like a pastor will say in a church or even a professor at a seminary or Bible college, whenever a spiritual leader doesn't hold to a high view of Scripture, they're not going to teach it with any kind of conviction or authority because, listen, in their mind it isn't trustworthy as being inspired by God. You'd be shocked to know how many pastors, pastors across this country don't believe the Bible is inspired by God like we do. They'll tell you it contains God's word, but it's not all God's word. Can't be, you know. So now I, I need him to tell me, well, what is inspired, what is God's word, and what is not. Now man is sitting in judgment of God's word instead of God's word sitting in judgment of all of us. Now, of course, that wasn't true of Jesus preaching and teaching. I mean, he knew he was proclaiming God's word. And as such, it says they were amazed at his teaching. For his word was with authority and ability and weight and power, as the Amplified translates Luke 4, 32. And guys, that's the single greatest reason why so many pastors today don't teach with any kind of power and authority. It's because they have a low view of Scripture. A low view of Scripture. They teach that the Bible is a collection of man-made myths, legends, allegories, moral principles, all brought together under a single cover, which we can learn from but can't take literally as an errant divine truth. So let's just close the book and go home. What are we here for? If the Bible is just a collection of man-made myths, legends, principles, but is not God's word, then there's no power to change a life. Close the book, go home, and do whatever you want. Listen to, you know, read Dear Abby. I mean, if she's just as authoritative then as the Bible, just opinions... Of course, that runs contrary to what the writers of the New Testament said about the Scriptures, not the least of which was Paul, who said in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture, all, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man, or of course woman of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We've talked about this. Let me just throw it out quickly. Inspiration... Uh, the word inspiration, or yes, the word inspiration, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is a Greek word, theonoustos, and which literally means God breathed. In other words, all scripture has been breathed out of God, has come from God, breathed out by him in a sense. It's interesting that Paul put it that way, and I don't know if he was thinking of Genesis when he wrote this, because in Genesis 2, verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed out into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So, in very much the same way God breathed life into Adam, the breath of God, the life of God, he breathed life into the scriptures, Hebrews 4, what? 12, the scripture is living and powerful. Because God's, it, God breathed it out. Now, of course, the Sadducees guys weren't the only spiritual leaders in Israel back then. They weren't teaching truth, just like liberals today aren't the only ones not teaching the word of God and truth. Plenty of evangelicals are guilty as well. Now, hear me out. I believe that most, if not all, evangelical pastors would defend the inspiration, the inerrancy, and the infallibility of the Bible with their last breath. 
And yet when it comes to the sufficiency of the Scripture, they stumble by believing the Bible needs to be supplemented with the wisdom of the world if Christians are to be fully victorious and fruitful. Now, I've told you this story uh, years ago when I first got into ministry. I uh, enrolled in a Bible college in the area. And one of my classes was on Christian counseling. You know, figured I'm going to have to talk to a lot of people over the years about, you know, counsel a lot of people. I should really maybe take a course or so. Uh, and I did. And, uh, and the, the man teaching the course was a pastor of a church in the area. And he was a good guy. But he made a statement one day that took me back so much so I had to ask him if I could talk to him after class. And he basically said that in my counseling experience, he counseled a lot. In fact, I got the impression he counseled more than he taught the Word. That was the problem, right? He said, in my counseling experience, if I, if I would have just used the Bible, I would have missed it. He said, we have to combine the secular and the sacred to come up with a superior counseling methodology. It's like a stake driven through my heart. You mean to tell me God's word is not sufficient? I've got to take the word of God and the wisdom of man and somehow put them together to make a superior counseling methodology? I talked to him about it. I didn't believe it. I didn't want to push it too much. I wanted a good, good grade. But I, I, uh, I let him know how I was feeling about that. Okay. Um, The Bible is sufficient. What, what does that mean? Well, sufficiency, guys, simply means that everything we need in the way of truth to live our Christian lives is contained in God's Word. It doesn't need to be supplemented with any other, other source of knowledge or information. And therefore, when it comes to uh, an instruction manual for Christian living, the Bible is complete, it's sufficient, it is perfect. Turn to Psalm 19. I'm not overstating this. The Bible says this of itself. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is what? Almost perfect. Kind of perfect, but needs to be supplemented with Freud, Jung, Maslow, Rogers. The law of the Lord, when you see you know, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, it's all just different ways of saying the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. The word perfect there in the Hebrew in verse 7 is a translation of a word that basically means whole, complete, or sufficient. It conveys the idea of something that is comprehensive so as to cover all aspects of an issue. But as I said, guys, it's at this point many evangelical pastors, I'm talking about evangelicals now, the liberals, yeah, they're, 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 they're always messing up with this stuff. I'm talking about evangelicals today, those who are supposed to contend earnestly for the faith. 
It's at this point many evangelical pastors and leaders have fallen victim to the wisdom of the world which, listen, has crept into the church. They no longer believe that the Bible is sufficient for all matters that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, that it contains everything we need in the way of truth to live a spiritually productive and emotionally healthy life. Instead, many Christian leaders, and I say many, I mean by the thousands. I'm not understating that or overstating that. By the thousands. Have bought into, listen, I'm going to pick on a sacred cow now. Uh, False doctrine is coming to the church. Let Let me pick on and try to destroy a sacred cow that has come into the church, that is worshipped as an idol, is being worshipped, all right? Uh, You dare not question it, by the way. It's like motherhood and apple pie. It's a given. Nobody questions it. We're just supposed to accept it. Shut up, sit down. It's truth. You just accept it. I don't accept it. You know what that lie is? Psychology. Psychology. Many Christian leaders, pastors, professors, and so on have bought into the lie of psychology, believing that the Bible must be supplemented with it if Christians are to be mentally are to be uh, mentally healthy and even spiritually mature and fruitful. They teach that the Bible, the Word of God, is sufficient for spiritual matters. But it can't be relied on to help us or to help those who are dealing with emotional issues like depression, low self-esteem, or a plethora of mental maladies that are inflicting folks today. See, the Bible was good for folks back a couple thousand years ago. But we live in a very complex society. You can't expect a Bible written all those years ago would be able to be sufficient to help people today. Why, are people different basically today? I mean, we drive around in, in, in cars and have, uh, you know, cell phones and things, but at our core, are we any different than people back then? I don't believe so. You know, Bible's okay on spiritual things, but when it comes to helping folks who are hurting, emotional pressure and depression and low self-esteem and all these other things, you know, they need a professional, not one of you pastors. They need a professional, a psychiatrist or a psychologist. That's the lie. That is the lie. And I've said this before. For 1,800 years before modern psychology came on the scene, the Bible was sufficient for the people of God. For all those years, the cure of souls was uh, used to be handled by clergymen in the church. I mean, what did Christians do for 1,800 years before psychology came on the scene? I'll tell you what they did. They flourished, listen, under the teaching of the Word of God, the biblical counseling ministries of godly, spirit-filled pastors and other spirit-filled Christians, and the love of the body of Christ, which was instructed by the Lord to bear each other's burdens by loving, encouraging, and praying for one another. It's sad that people, well, I can't blame the church uh, completely. We're partly to blame, but we're so busy that we don't want to spend time with people anymore. And I realize some people, they're time vampires. They'll just drain all your time and energy. You've got to be careful. But it's a a sad day when people have to pay a secular professional to just listen to them. I mean, psychology and counseling on on that level has been called the talking cure. People just need to talk to somebody. They did a survey years ago. 
they took people with the same problem. Some went to the secular professionals, others just went to Christians and family. They both got better at the same rate. Because people just need to talk to people. That's how they get better, That's, you know, if they're going through emotional hurts. Yeah, but again, they, my life is so much more difficult today than, than back then. Really? Really? You think they were a problem-free back then? Think about what you're saying. Think about people that lived in times of famine, disease, uh, war. I mean, these, they couldn't turn to modern medicine. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, they couldn't go to the supermarket and buy groceries. They had to grow the stuff. And if there's no water, if it was a drought, they suffered severely. Yet these people survived because Christians now, because they trusted in God, they clung to his word, and they had the body of Christ to come around and pray for each other and so on. And God got them through. But all that changed, guys, with the coming of psychology under the scene. <laughs> I've said this before, let me say it again. The devil pulled off a major coup when he psychologized the church. Recovery replaced repentance. Therapy replaced theology. Sin was turned into sickness. And happiness replaced holiness as the chief pursuit of the Christian life. And guys, the reason that psychology has had such an easy time infiltrating into our society and into the church of Jesus Christ is because it has entered under the guise of science. But is it really a science? The word psychology comes from two Greek words, suke, the Greek word for soul, and lagos, a Greek word that refers to a body of knowledge and or the communication of that knowledge, and therefore psychology is the knowledge and communication of that which deals with the soul of man. Some of you might be thinking, so what's wrong with that? Well, the problem is in the name. Psychology, by its very definition, it claims to deal with the non-physical soul of man, which places it outside the realm of science, which by its very definition can only deal with the physical. The physical. One author said, and I quote, scientists develop theories based on what they observe. That has to be in the physical realm. Then they examine each theory with rigorous tests to see if it accurately describes reality. Science is all about observing, reproducing, the physical, okay? And since science only deals with the physical realm, those things which are governed by, excuse me, it only deals with the physical realm, those things which are governed by physical laws, which can be, again, observed or reproduced in like a laboratory setting, you know, unlike medicine, which deals with the physical brain and is a science, psychology deals with the non-physical mind of man. And they're not the same, by the way. They're not the same. And therefore, it can't be a science. And yet, again, Christian leaders by the thousands have bought into the lie that psychology is an irrefutable science. And therefore, the Bible must yield to its wisdom. Okay, Even though, again, psychology isn't based on any observable scientific laws. Well, you say, then what is it based on? Are you ready? It is based on human philosophy, worldly wisdom, and conjecture. And please don't take my word for it. Listen to what the secular professionals themselves have said about it. 
Sigmund Koch appointed, listen, by the American Psychological Association some time ago to direct and oversee a study involving 80 eminent scholars, psychologists, in assessing the facts, theories, and methods of psychology made this statement. This guy is a top guy. Here's what he said. I'm quoting him. The entire subsequent history of psychology can be seen as a ritualistic endeavor to emulate the forms of science in order to, in order to sustain the delusion that it is already a science, end quote. Psychiatrist Lee Coleman, in his book about psychiatry, which he entitled The Reign of Error, said, and I quote, psychiatry does not observe, excuse me, psychiatry does not deserve the legal power it has been given. He goes on to say psychiatry is not a science. What's he talking about? Well, this man has gone around all over the country uh, testifying in court cases. But here's the problem, and it's why they bring him in, actually. Because some guy's on trial for something, okay, something pretty heinous. And, uh, of course, the defense brings in all kinds of competent, uh, you know, licensed psychiatrists and psychologists to examine him and say, well, after we've examined him, we realize that he was insane at the time of the crime, therefore should be found innocent. But then the prosecution counters with, a, with a, an equal number of very educated, erudite uh, psychiatrists and psychologists who have examined the guy and said, no, he was sane at the time of the crime. Uh, he should be tried, uh, you know, like anybody else. Obviously, you've no doubt heard this, seen that kind of thing. If a, it was a science, you wouldn't have all this ambiguity and uh, all that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> that's why Coleman goes on to say, and I'm quoting him again, I have testified in over 130 criminal and civil trials around the country, uh, countering the authority of psychiatrists or psychologists hired by one side or the other. In each case, I try to educate the judge or jury about why the opinions produced by these professionals have no scientific merit, end quote. In an article entitled Psychology Goes Insane, Botch's Role as Science, Psychiatrist, these are all secular professionals. They're not lunatic pastors like me, all right? These are people in the profession, all right? Secular folks. But the psychiatrist Roger, Roger Mills writes, this is, I thought this was mind-blowing, and I quote, he said, the field of psychology today is literally a mess. There are as many techniques, methods, and theories around as there are researchers and therapists. I have personally seen therapists convince their clients that all of their problems come from their mothers, the stars, their biochemical makeup, their diet, their lifestyle, and even karma from their past lives, end quote. You can see, guys, that these so-called, all these experts, I should say, they all admit that psychology isn't a science because it deals with the non-physical mind of man. And that, let me just stop there. That's why there's no such thing as mental illness. Mental illness. Because the mind, non-physical, can't get sick. The brain can. We'll talk about that more in a second. But all this talk of psychology being moved into the realm of medicine and uh, mental illness, that was all an attempt to categorize these mental conditions as a medical condition, that way the insurance companies would pay for the treatment, okay? You say, if you, years ago, if you said, I'm having a bad day, I'm kind of down. Well, they wouldn't rush you into a 
for, there wasn't anybody back in the early days, but uh, it wouldn't rush you into a, a clinic to get some counseling necessarily because nobody was p paying for any of that. Church companies weren't paying for it. You have to go to your family, talk it out with your, your family, your church. But today they've classified all these things as mental illnesses, and therefore now they can build the insurance companies, and it's a big money-making thing. I'm not saying everybody in is out to make money. Nobody wants to help people. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this is, this is what's going on, all right? This is what's going on. But these experts are saying that psychology isn't the science because, again, it deals with the non-physical mind of man. And that's why there's so much confusion around it, as I just said, because so many people today think of it in medical terms. And it really isn't because the brain, yeah, medical terms, brain and organ can get sick, like I've got heart disease or a person with... Uh, with a, a, a pancreas that's not operating correctly or, uh, you know, or the brain's an organ. Sometimes people, as I take medicine for my heart, sometimes people need medicine for their brain chemistry. The brain is an organ. The brain can get sick. The brain is un falls under a medical category. The mind is non-physical. It can't get ill. Look, if you were to break your leg, and you went to a medical doctor. He or she would know exactly what to do to set the leg. You can go to five doctors, and they would all do the same thing in treating your broken leg because that's medicine. That's medicine. It's a physical problem. They've been trained in that. They know how to fix it. But when a person starts to try to fix problems in the non-physical realm, the realm of the soul, there aren't any physical or scientific laws to govern them. And guys, that's the problem with psychology and why it's so confusing today because, again, it is a non-science trying to pass itself off as a genuine science. Um, but it's not based on any kind of scientific laws and so on. Um, so then what is it? What is it? Well, listen to me. Any system that seeks to understand and help the soul of man is by its very definition of religion, a religion. Let me just stop and say this. There is a segment of psychology that is scientific. It's the part that studies human behavior, okay? And you're studying something physical, okay? But when they move from just observing human behavior to explaining it and then telling you how to cure it, now they move from the realm of the scientific, the physical, into the realm of the spiritual, okay, the non-physical, because, again, I can observe human behavior, but I can't crawl into somebody's mind and tell you, well, why they're doing this. I can, I can guess. I can come up with theories. And then, of course, from that to go how to fix the behavior. See, this is religion. This is, this is why this is so dangerous. You think, well, you, you kind of got off of the subject, didn't you? No, not at all. We're talking about the church being a place where God's word is to be taught faithfully. The truth, right? Well, don't you know that wherever the truth is being taught, the devil's going to try to sow lies? Don't you realize there's, only, realize there's only two information streams in the world? They all both start in the Garden of Eden. God's truth, Satan's lie. God's truth, word of God. Man, Satan's lies, wisdom of man. This is a competing 
It, this is a religion that say it's a golden calf in the midst of God's people and the church is worshiping it as they turn away from the God, the God of the word. Again, this is supported by many secular psychiatrists, including Thomas Sast. Thomas says, I think he's gone now, but um, he was considered at one time one of the top guys in the field of psychiatry. He, he was the guru, one of the gurus. They all looked to him, okay? Not, this was one of the top. He's the guy at the conference speaking. Thousands of psychologists and psychiatrists would go to listen to, okay? He said, and I'm quoting him, the human relations we now call psychotherapy are in fact matters of religion and that we mislabel them as therapeutic at great risk to our spiritual well-being. It is not merely a religion that pretends to be a science. It is actually a fake religion that seeks to destroy true religion, end quote. Wow. That's quite a statement from a secular Jew on his own profession. But he's right. Psychology is not a science. It is a rival religious system. It is humanism. Why? It puts man at the center of everything. That's humanism, okay? Which our government, or Supreme Court, I should say, years ago listed as a religion. Humanism is a religion. It puts man at the center. Christianity, you know, we categorize it as a religion. It's a relationship, but it's at God at the center. Listen to me. Psychology is a rival religious system that seeks to undermine the authority and the sufficiency of the scriptures. When it comes to explaining the soul and changing human behavior, the Bible claims to speak with absolute authority, and that's why God is described in the Bible, Isaiah six uh, 9, verse 6, as the wonderful what? Counselor. But listen, if Satan can get you to believe that the Bible isn't adequate, sufficient, to deal with the complex problems of today that people face, well, the devil can convince Christians of this. He can turn you away from the truth and get you to embrace a false religious system, psychology, in the hope that, it, that you know, turn to it that, in the hopes that, you know, it's going to provide some answers. But I blame pastors primarily for this. Men of God who ought to know better. Men of God who do believe, you know, in the inerrancy, infallibility, divine revelation of the scriptures, but then they fall down when it comes to, is the Bible adequate, sufficient to deal with all the complex? Is it, can we turn to the Bible and get all we need for life and godliness? I believe yes, but a lot of pastors don't believe that. Do you know that the church has become the I'm not making this up. The church has become the largest referral agency in the world to secular psychiatrists and psychologists. Churches used to, to allocate money to hire godly pastors who would exegete and teach the scriptures. Now have allocated that money to bring on board uh, psychologists and other experts. I know some would be thinking to themselves at this point, you Christians, you know, you always base everything in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, it's evil. Dave Hunt, 
who has written extensively on this subject, said in response to that kind of thinking, he said, look, I'm quoting him, well, I don't think you should go to the Bible for your chemistry lessons or for how to fix your car or how to learn how to balance your checkbook. But when it comes to the soul of men, the Bible has always claimed to speak on that subject with absolute authority, end quote. And again, guys, when psychology claims to be the, the authority on the soul of man, it is encroached into an area it has no business in. And is nothing less than Satan's attempt to undermine, again, the sufficiency of the scriptures in our lives. Turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians 2. We bring this to a close. Look, guys, you know, I know that you're not looking over my shoulder when I'm preparing these messages. Sometimes they flow, I'm not kidding you, it's almost like I'm taking dictation. They just write themselves. And some days, if you walk by my office with the door closed and you heard me moaning and groaning, you think I was giving birth in there. That's how this message was. I mean, I, kept, I wasn't sure where the Lord wanted to go with it. I kept praying, agonizing it, writing, rewriting, moving things around, opening up new Word documents, pasting stuff over it. Let's keep that on the side for a minute. I'm not sure God wants me to go there. Finally, after hours and hours, and I'm not, you know, you could say, well, I think you still missed it. Well, okay, I, but I'm just saying I didn't throw this together, and I really prayed about it. And you know what? I have to believe somebody is here, that God wanted to hear this. I, I, I just have to believe that. Because I really wasn't planning on going in this direction when I started this part of our study. The church is the place where the word of God is to be taught faithfully and in truth. But here's where we wound up. Listen to what Paul said, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Guys, only God's word has the power to transform a life. But again, sadly, far too many churches and pastors have rejected that idea as foolish, archaic, and naive, choosing rather to make uh, the focus of their churches uh, so many other things. I'm, I'm just dumbfounded. I've been reading some things on church attendance, uh, articles that have come out, why uh, so many people are not, young people especially, are not going to church anymore. They're not going to church anymore. That's it interests me, okay? So I was reading these articles, and let me give you the gist of it. When people come to church, they want in some way to connect with God. How do you do that except through his word, right? But when they come to church today, here's what they're getting. The latest pop psychology, uh, mysticism, contemplative spirituality, uh, materialism, word of faith, Right? Just believe you're going to be Cadillac in your mansion. They're hearing environmentalism. So many churches are green now. Uh, it's all about envir the environment, saving the planet. How about we save the people on the planet? Social justice, that's a big one. People come to church and hearing, some churches, are, that's all they're about is social justice, which is Christianized Marxism. 
These are the themes that dominate pulpits across our country. When people go to church to connect with God, here's what they're getting. So here's the conclusion they're coming to. If this is what the church is all about, I, I didn't come here to be, to be preached to about politics or about the environment. I want to know God. And that's why they said the only churches, listen to me, that are growing are the ones that are teaching the Bible. And yet, what can I say? If you don't have a high view of Scripture, if you don't believe it is the inspired, inerrant Word of God that alone can transform lives, well, you're not going to teach it with power and authority if you teach it at all. And people are going to come and they're going to hear a talk. You might as well give a TED Talk. Go on, you know, pull up a TED Talk, okay? Uh, you know, and listen to some goofy, you know, thing that, you know, secular thing or whatever. But you're never going to transform a life. You're never going to transform a life with that kind of stuff. And that's why more and more Christians, and I've talked about this, that's why, because people are going to church and they're not, you know, getting what they really feel they need, God. That's why more and more Christians all over the country and the world, for that matter, are saying our church isn't what it used to be. I heard a host of a Christian radio show. The show is Crosstalk, good show. Um, she was reading some letters that she had received on this subject. I'll give you a flavor of it. She, uh, she was reading these letters. One of them said, our church is changing. Something is happening. Our church is moving away from a biblical Christ-centered approach to ministry. The meaty sermons have disappeared, and we're getting entertainment. Our small group is memorizing large portions of the purpose-driven life instead of memorizing Scripture. Something's changing in our church. We can't put our finger on it, but it seems that our voices are being ignored. When we try to speak out in our small group, people shout us down. We are viewed as Bible thumpers in our own church, end quote. Wow. I'll give you one more scripture. Turn to Colossians 2. Let me read to you out of the NLT. Colossians 2, verse 8. Paul said, don't let, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of, the God, of God in, human, in a human body, so you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. You're complete. In other words, Jesus is sufficient. Your, your relationship with him, his word, is sufficient. Look, we're done. Please understand, it's not my desire, or it's not my desire today to destroy your faith in something you believe in as maybe a last hope, psychology or psychiatry. And certainly, again, there are individuals who have brain disorders and may need to go to like a chemical imbalance and may need to go to a medical doctor or a psychiatrist who can prescribe medicine to help correct that brain, uh, brain chemistry uh, imbalance but that is different from the mind the soul of man okay so a lot of people who have their brains are working fine physically but their soul is depressed lonely hurting broken they need Jesus they need Jesus he's the wonderful counselor he needs to move in and begin to recreate them from the inside out through his Holy Spirit. 
That's what they need. And the church needs to be a place to point them to Jesus, to teach God's word, not have people come in and then refer them to secular psychiatrists and all. So we'll leave it there. I hope we've communicated the importance of not only teaching God's word, but believing it is the word of God, which alone can bring change and transformation into a person's life. The word of God coupled with the power of the spirit, there's no problem that God can't solve. There, we, we could line up people literally, almost indefinitely, who would tell you how ridiculously broken their lives were because of drugs or abuses kids and they went off the rails at a young age and just got into drugs and all kinds of other horrible things almost self-destructed nobody could help them the professionals couldn't help them at all and then they wound up in a church or a christian friend witnessed to them and they received christ and he completely he completely transformed them from this broken beaten down person to a, a, a child of God who is being used by him now to touch many others for him. Church needs to be a place where God's word is taught faithfully and in truth because only God's word has the power to change lives. Father, we thank you, Lord, that, well, I thank you that you brought me to a pastor who believed these things about your word, that it was your word. It's powerful. And Lord, I had to thank you that you gave me a good, solid foundation upon which you have built over all these years in my ministry and my life. And Father, we pray that our church would continue to be a place where people can come and hear your word, teach, taught, and preach faithfully in the power of the Spirit. And Lord, we pray that revival would break out across this nation, that pulpits would get set on fire again for truth. And that people would start getting saved and healed and not just glued back together, but made brand new. So, Father, we ask you to continue to bless our studies on this subject in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.